Hi, welcome to episode six of the Indie Wine Podcast. My name is Matt Wood, and today we're going to be hearing from Mike Dunn, who recently wrote The Signature Wines of Superior California, 50 Wines That Define the Sierra Foothills, the Delta, Yolo, and Lodi. Mike was a longtime wine writer for the Sac B newspaper and has covered many of the regions in the book as they have grown from having one or two wineries to the hundreds that they have today. The book is full of the history of these regions as well as 50 wines that Mike feels represent the Superior California region. I'll let Mike explain where that term comes from. He gives us some more info about these wines and regions, as well as the changes he's seen in the California wine industry and some other fun stories with wine industry luminaries. Hope you enjoy. Here we go. I think it has more history in it than originally envisioned. At first, I saw it being a relatively thin book based on just the 50 wines that uh, I thought would uh, represent pivotal developments in the uh, development of the modern wine trade in the greater Sacramento area. And I got that part finished, and it didn't tell the story as completely as I had hoped. The wines themselves needed more context, so I went back and uh, started at the beginning and decided to to build introductory segments around uh, the creation of American viticultural areas in the greater Mm -hmm. Sacramento region. Yeah, Yeah, I think those give a lot of great context to when the regions were kind of re-explored by some of the more modern day wineries and the grapes that were planted. I think those sections added a lot of great context. How have those regions changed in the time since you've lived in Sacramento area? You've been there a long time and I imagine I've seen a lot of changes during those Yeah, when we first moved into the area, it was 1970, late summer, and we moved into the Sierra Foothills, into Amador County, living in uh, in Sutter Creek initially. And at that time, there was just uh, one winery, really, in uh, Amador County, in Shenandoah Valley, and that was the uh, D'Agostini Winery, which is the old Adam Ullinger property. And that is a state historic landmark. Uh, The landmark says that Ullingers were in the area planting a vineyard and developing, building a winery, possibly as early as 1856. Um, Now, it's more likely that it was closer to 1866, but at least it's still a long, a long time from 1866 to 1970 for just that one winery to be in uh, Shenandoah Valley. And it survived wars, economic uh, depression, recessions, and uh, course, of course, uh, prohibition hung in there. And um, in, in 1970, uh, it was, it was um, fun winery. They made... Um, Zinfandel-based wines for the most part, but they had some missions, some Alicante Boucher, some Carignan, and they were making blends and marketing them under traditional European names like Burgundy and um, Claret and uh, Sauternes, even though they weren't related in -hmm. either style or grape to what was going on or had been going on historically in Europe. Yeah. So that was the first one in Amador County when you were there. Do you remember any that were in El Dorado or any of the other surrounding counties? In El Dorado County, um, I don't rec- I don't think there were any 
1970. Boger would have been the first. At that time, there was like 11 acres of vineyards in um, in El Dorado, or at least in the 60s, or 11. There might have been, a, there was a few more. People were starting to develop vineyards before the wineries became prominent, but then the Greg Boger family came in in 72, the McCready family in the Pleasant Valley area. There was Lester Russell in uh, Fair Play and Brian Fitzpatrick all around the same time, more or less, and the, and the uh, Bush family right up the, uh, the road from uh, Boger's in the early 1970s, 72, 73. But basically there were, there were very few in Calaveras, uh, there were a couple of guys that started uh, chip sauce cellars in, it was around, around 71, 72. So that would have been the first modern in Calaveras, first modern winery in Calaveras County. That predated Barton Stevenow, who came in uh, with his namesake winery and had the most impact in Calaveras County uh, during that era. Lodi had... Uh, Lodi would have been, I think Boris Sellers would have been the first boutique winery starting in the early, mid-1970s. But there was a big corporate and cooperative presence mm -hmm. of winemaking in Lodi at that time. Um, there were, there, there were a, quite a few vineyards. You know, Flame, uh, Flame Toque was going out in and uh, Vitis Vinifera, other Vitis Vitis vinifera grape varieties were coming into Lodi, mm -hmm. being planted extensively. Zinfandel, Petit Syrah, uh, some Cabernet, Chardonnay, uh, but mainly Zinfandel. And uh, that was, I mean, it, the Lodi development of vineyards, of course, predates Prohibition, uh, starting in the 1850s, but then actually picked up here in Prohibition because of home winemaking, and the, uh, it was still allowable in uh, the country and a lot of Lodi produce, fruit was being shipped east, and it actually grew during Prohibition. And then when repeal came along, it just continued to, to expand in Lodi. How did you get started writing about the wineries in uh, Superior, California? Yeah, Superior, California. Well, it um, uh, we moved into the area, and I was freelance writing and working part-time for the Amador Dispatch, the community newspaper in, in Jackson. I only wanted to write uh, uh, for the paper part-time because I wanted to pursue a, a freelance writing. And part of that, I ended up stringing for a number of um, daily newspapers, the Stockton Record, the Sacramento Union, uh, San Francisco Chronicle and Examiner, but mostly the Sacramento Bee. And the editor, the assistant editor initially, and then he became the editor of what was called the Superior California section, which was the bees section devoted to news in outlying areas. And by Superior California, they meant more or less from Sacramento North to the Oregon line and east of Highway 5 on over to Nevada. And so the editor of that section was a fellow, Joe Evans, very interested in uh, food and wine. He liked, he liked good food. He liked fine wine. And he also began to sense that some things were starting to happen with the development of um, vineyards and wineries at first in the foothills. And so he would get this tip or he would hear about somebody 
planting a vineyard or somebody starting a winery. And he would ask me to um, pursue the tip. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I did, and generally there would be a, a feature story that would come out of that about the people who were coming in. Um, Carrie Gott and his wife, Victoria, were the first ones to establish a winery in Shenandoah Valley, aside from the D'Agostini. The Leon Sobon family came in shortly thereafter. Uh, Dick Cooper, who was a member of a longtime farming family in Shenandoah Valley, he and his father, Hank, began putting in vines. So it led to a number of vineyard-related, uh, winery-related stories, and my interest in wine grew from there. My stringing began in, uh, for the B, began in 1971. In 1978, they had a retirement in the features department. I was primarily interested in writing features. They asked if I would be interested in uh, coming aboard as a full-time staffer in the features department, and I was. And so I began in November 1978. By that time, Joe Evans had become the features editor. So I was doing a whole lots of different kinds of, of features, uh, personality profiles, uh, issues, controversial issues. Um, I did several features related to AIDS because it was um, a major story at that time, but also began to develop, uh, began to do a uh, food column and uh, it was kind of an offbeat thing doing, like there was a, a factory still existing in uh, Sacramento in the South Side area of the community, which is part of downtown, that made uh, fortune cookies, still making fortune cookies. So it would be a, a column on kind of offbeat, you know, specialty foods, led to other specialty foods. And uh, Joe was still urging me to keep an eye on wine developments in the area, and not only in the immediate area, but Napa Valley, of course, and Sonoma County. So I would be mm -hmm. doing stories on um, Robert Mondavi and er other early players, uh, August Sebastiani, uh, David Ramey at Ramey Cellars, and just... Uh, numerous players, you know, Giulio Gallo, and uh, of course the Gallo brothers, but um, being able to spend a day working on a feature with um, Giulio Gallo was um, a kick and, and doing stories in, in a similar vein. It doesn't seem like too many people get the uh, the chance to do a big story on the Gallos. They must have, no, must have the, liked you. The Gallos were, were, were pretty secretive, pretty closed, and uh, Ernest remained that way as his whole life, but Julio uh, was a little more approachable and accessible. And one day I got a call that um, said Julio was making, you know, one of his uh, periodic frequent visits to the Sonoma properties that they were developing. And okay. they had brought, they had purchased equipment from the construction of the Alaska pipeline, which had been completed. And they were mm -hmm. moving a lot of earth developing extensive vineyards in Sonoma. And they said, uh, well, Julio's flying over, uh, be it uh, executive airport in such or such a time and, and uh, you know, get in his copter and fly over and uh, view the vineyard developments from the air and land and 
go to lunch and visit the vineyards on foot and so forth. So that uh, that worked into a, a fun feature. Yeah, it sounds like uh, it. Yeah. <laughs> Any other favorite wine stories from that time at the SACB? Any uh, favorite features or wineries you liked to write about? Well, yeah, there's, um, of course, Warren Winarski at Stag's Leap was... Um, a presence, you know, in 76, his wine, his Cabernet, won the, you know, the Judgment of Paris. And uh, so that really drew a lot of attention to uh, Napa Valley, California generally, and Napa Valley, and then uh, Warren and Robert Mondavi and and others. So over the years, kept in touch with uh, Warren and have done other columns and, and stories. And we were in judging at... Um, Colorado, maybe five or six years ago, and had been invited to stick around after the competition and um, to fly to the various Appalachian. Well, there's only two or three, uh, three Appalachians, I think, in, in Colorado at that time. We hit all three in one or two days and um, tagging along with Warren to see what kind of advice he was giving to grape growers in Colorado was instructive and, and fun and you know, resulted in another um, feature story. Early on, I think it was 82, 83, I heard, kept hearing about, you know, Robert Parker Jr. Robert M. Parker Jr. was rising in esteem as an influential wine critic. So teamed up with uh, Parker in, in San Francisco to, to do a column and subsequent columns. Um, over the years, when he came through the area, when he was instructing at uh, the Colony Institute of America and so forth. And then just for the most part, most of the writing I was I was doing because at the B, uh, we really covered the local area, the regional area. And so most of the wine writing I did uh, would have been focused on the on the foothills and on the Delta, Lodi, and elsewhere in, in Yolo County. And of course, the University of California at Davis, the viticulture and enology department there was always a good source of stories based on research that they were doing. And uh, of course, in recent years, that would be smoke taint. But early on, it was uh, very early on, they began researching uh, in the 50s uh, screw caps versus uh, corks and screw caps uh, only began to really get the attention of uh, winemakers in California in, in the 70s. So that uh, 70s and 80s, so they had already been doing research for a couple of decades. So they were well positioned to help me develop uh, uh, a story that would, you know, look into the uh, the role that screw caps could could play in California winemaking and worldwide winemaking, and and that was another early column uh, again that I could follow up on over the years. Uh, but most of the stories had to do with um, the personalities that were drawn to the um, the wine trade and what they were doing to you know leave their own signature and footprint. Uh, whether it be Robert Mondavi, someone with his prominence, or the families, small families, the individuals coming into Lodi, the Delta, and the foothills, and what their aspirations were. 
Mm -hmm. And th those regions uh, still are largely, I think, you know, underappreciated and overlooked yeah. even by people who are very enthusiastic about wine. Um, if they're from outside Cal or even within California, they gravitate toward uh, Napa Valley and uh, Sonoma County, it's many Appalachians. Paso Robles, Santa Barbara, and uh, with justification, there are they are uh, regions that are known for very impressive wines, and usually working with you know the so-called noble varieties like Cabernet and Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Noir, and all of which um, have not by and large, with some exceptions, have not done well in, in the foothills or in Lodi or the Delta areas that have had to carve out their own identities, often with grape varieties that also are underappreciated and uh, easily overlooked, whether it be, uh, could be Zinfandel, Chenin Blanc, Petit Syrah, and, but that's changing and, um, slowly, but it is is changing. And I think that they are rising in, in stature and there are winemakers who are doing really exciting things with say just Zinfandel alone. Uh, Bill Easton with his Zinster. Um, yeah, it's a great wine. Style of Zinfandel, lighter, fresher, buoyant. Uh, Dave Lucas, uh, Lucas Winery in um, Lodi also has lightened up and produces a breezier style of Zinfandel. I was at Cooper Vineyards in Shenandoah Valley recently and tasted uh, their St. Peter's Church Vineyard uh, Zinfandel, uh, which was a, a revelation, another very elegant, uh, fresh and refreshing style. I'm just getting ready to, to write up that, St. Peter's Church being a, a vineyard in uh, Cloverdale and uh, Kent Rasmussen was very instrumental in discovering that vineyard, now 130 years old. But back in, uh, I think it was 2006 or thereabouts, Dick Cooper had uh, heard about, probably appreciated some releases coming from that vineyard. This is in Vindel, got some cuttings and developed a 2.8 acre plot of it at, and early on used those um, grapes for his Shenandoah Valley standard Deaver clone, uh, Zinfandel. And then he and his winemaker, Mike uh, Roser, recognized what a distinctive wine all on its own um, it could yield. So they began to release in very small quantities, a St. Peter's uh, Church Zinfandel with the 2012 vintage. And uh, since then, uh, it's become their premium Zinfandel. I think it retails for $41, $42 now, but, uh, and sells out very fast because it's, it's just a different take on Zinfandel, but um, it's very, has a lot of vitality to it, a lot of um, sunny fruit, 
great acidity and spice. They age it for about three years in American oak. Okay. And uh, but it had, doesn't have a pronounced oakiness to it. It's the fruit is really is what uh, is highlighted. So things are continue to evolve and, and develop. That's not a wine that um, is in the signature wines of Superior California, one of the uh, one of the 50 that I highlight, but um, it's a new discovery. And if there are subsequent editions, then um, it, it, it could be one of the 50. Wines come and go and wineries come and go. Are there any wineries that would kind of be on that, that legacy list, wineries that you feel like the wine would be in the book if it was still around? Mm. Well, if it was still around, certainly the uh, uh, D'Agostini Reserve Burgundy, which was based on Zinfandel and actually was, was a wine that it was, uh, you know, even in the 50s and 60s would be, by today's standards, seen be seen as a, a modern wine in that it was... Um, Fermented with indigenous yeast, uh, which you know, as you know, is, is very fashionable now, has come back into to vogue. But that's that's what they did then. Uh, but that went away. Um, interestingly enough, however, uh, the Charles Spinetta Winery in Shenandoah Valley, just within the past week, was sold to a member of the Diagostini family. A relative of, of there are several Diagostinis up in uh, Amador and El Dorado counties. Okay, so they are reviving the the traditional Diagostini label. They can't use the name Reserve Burgundy. Uh, they have acquired rights to the name, but Burgundy can't. They weren't grandfathered in, of course, uh, when French Burgundian producers had the name Burgundy. Uh, safeguarded, uh, so American wineries can't use it. So they can't, but they'll use, they will make a Zinfandel wine in that style, very accessible, uh, easygoing, fruity, and uh, release it, I think they're gonna call it uh, Legacy Red. Okay. And Reserve Legacy Red or something to that effect. And that'll be coming on down the line. That would be another one, a candidate that would be a, I suppose for inclusion in a in a future edition and a throwback to a wine that certainly had it been around, I would probably have included it. Was there a winery or wine that sort of jump started the book? Was there one that you had in your mind as kind of the uh, the template? The one that comes to mind certainly uh, would be the Shenandoah Vineyards Special Reserve Zinfandel. Uh, again, Zinfandel, but it is, it's been around, let's see, that winery started in uh, 1977, and within a couple of years, they had introduced this uh, Special Reserve Zinfandel. But from the outs outset, Special Reserve sort of uh, these days is kind of used to designate a, um, a very premium wine, one that's uh, very concentrated, uh, probably had a lot of oak in it and would sell at a premium price, you know, 40, 50, $60. But the Sobon family wanted their special reserve to be readily accessible upon release 
It's been in a screw cap, I think, most of the, almost from the beginning. Okay. The retail price 40 years ago was maybe eight, nine, ten dollars It's still just $12, suggested so retail price upon release. So that would have been one that unquestionably would have been um, part of the book from the, the beginning. Uh, I, I'm sure uh, Jeff Runquist, uh, Cooper Vineyard, Barbera mm -hmm. uh, would have been one that probably would have um, uh, really got me started. Uh, would have had to been a wine that definitely should have been um, included. The same with uh, Terre Rouge, Syrah, uh, Scott Harvey, uh, Zinfandel from what has been called the Grand Pair Vineyard, now correctly called the original Grand Pair Vineyard. Very small, so uh, Scott Harvey Wines and some other producers, Vino Nocetto, uh, used fruit from that vineyard for very limited release of wines. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the vineyard could date from 1869, and so those vines are really old, and the yield is very small. So there's not much of that around, but it's uh, very cherished wine, so that's definitely one that I would anticipate would have had to be in the book from the beginning and would continue to be, hopefully. Were there any kind of late additions or, or surprises or nearly overlooked choices? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I um, my original thought was that the book would have 49 wines, uh, capitalizing on Highway 49, uh, the gold rush was closely associated mm. with 1849. And uh, Daryl Cordy uh, of the Cordy Brothers uh, grocery store here and a longtime California, well, worldwide wine authority looked at an early draft of the book and said, hmm, you know, you really should include and he mentioned a wine, which turned out, that I, which I had overlooked um, and didn't have in the, in the 49. And so it helped boost up the, the total to, to 50, a nice round traditional 50. And it was the uh, Jeff Runquist Clarksburg Petite Syrah. Uh, and, and so that was included. There are others that um, relatively new that I wanted in the fold. Um, one is, again, Bill Easton's Zin, uh, Zinster, lighter style, kind of Beaujolais style, Zinfandel, uh, The End of Nowhere, um, mm -hmm. Carbonic, Zinfandel, uh, also real light, fresh, easygoing style, which sort of represents the um, natural wine movement. And it's only been released over the past few years, but tasting two or three vintages of it. It's different. Uh, it's meant to be different from what Amador Zinfandel, how it usually expresses itself. So I'm glad I was able to include that. And then over the past decade or so, uh, Turley Wines, mm -hmm. so uh, uh, identified with powerhouse Zinfandels from throughout California, Lodi, uh, Paso Robles, uh, Napa has become a player 
joined the wine scene in Shenandoah Valley. And there is Infidel there that Judge Bell is I'm thinking of, and that's the one that's in the book, is again, it's, it does say Amador in its boysenberry, blackberry characteristics, but it's kind of dialed back a bit in the ripeness usually associated with Amador County. So it is, you know, lower in alcohol, easier to to um, take than mm-hmm. some Amador wines have been. So I'm I'm glad that another a newer representative uh, of what Zinfandel can be from Lodi. There's the things that um, Marcus Nigley is doing with Marcus Wine Company, with uh, especially with white wines, but also red wines, is very intricate, imaginative, high-toned white wine blends. And um, Susan Tipton at Acquiesce Winery, focusing almost strictly on white wines or solely on white wines with offbeat, by Lodi standards, um, Lodi history, uh, white wines that are um, very expressive, very pointed, again, very refreshing and bringing a whole new slant to the uh, Lodi uh, wine scene. Yeah, I, I thought that was something really fun about the book is that you have you have a lot of the wineries that have been there for a long time, the Madrona and Boger and Vino and Chetto and, and so on. But there's also a good mix of the Harmeyer, Fields, family, end of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Ones are a little newer. Right. And it's great that you're still discovering new producers in <laughs> in these areas that you've been covering for so long. Yeah, I was uh, initially, uh, a couple of days ago, I was scheduled to visit a new uh, vintner in Amador County, just east of Sutter Creek. I was going to go up there tomorrow to see what he was up to. And he comes from uh, an Indian background and heritage and a software heritage. Uh, but he seems like a really hand, hands-on at this point, uh, grape grower and winemaker. He's just getting started. He doesn't have anything commercially mm-hmm. yet to release. Okay. We put off that appointment because of the weather prediction for t- tomorrow is probably keep us out of the Tough day to vineyards. go out in the vineyards, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, one of the things he is doing, which really excites me, is that he is planting portion of his vineyard to the Clone 6 Cabernet Sauvignon. Oh, that you cover in the book? Right, yeah. This was uh, the clone that was planted at the Jackson Experimental Station starting in the late 1800s. The station then was abandoned in 1913, Somehow, the vines survived until the 1960s when it was uh, 60s, and it was rediscovered, propagated by UC Davis, and uh, has been released. And is a very, it's a clone that is very stingy um, and very hard. the The Cabernet Sauvignon that it yields is fierce with tannins, but there are some winemakers in Napa Valley that. To swear by it, and because it is so expressive of, of what Cabernet can say, and so they use it 
in blends, and in a couple of cases with very, very limited release um, clone six designates wines. Okay. So what this guy is is bringing it back and is uh, it's going to be really exciting to see how it does up there and what he does with that fruit and if he can tame the tannins and and release a, a really really nice Cabernet Sauvignon, which is uh, very rare in the foothills. CGDRE has after twenty years of working with the the grape and experimenting with different clones, uh, Heim has really uh, mastered it. And I'm I'm glad that's, I was able to include his Cabernet Sauvignon in the book. Is that wine intended to be released as only clone six or blended with with some others? At this point, I have no idea. And uh, that's one thing that I was hoping that we would and we will eventually, maybe in a couple of weeks when things dry out, we can talk about that and I'll uh, report back to you what his aspirations are with the clone. Do you have any favorite vineyards that you, you love to visit in the areas of this book? Any that you feel like they really speak to you when you're there? A clock spring vineyard in, um, again, in the Shenandoah Valley, its history, uh, the personalities identified with it, the late Frank Alviso, and uh, his partner, business partner, John Hahn, uh, who actually I became acquainted with, not because he was a grape grower, uh, but he was the, uh, the counsel, the, the lawyer for Amador County uh, when I was at the dispatch. And we would attend weekly board of supervisor meetings He in his capacity and me and my capacity as a, as a reporter became acquainted well in, about political issues long before uh, we got on the same page concerning grapes and wine. So Clock Spring Vineyards, <clears throat> that, and not only for the history, but uh, Steve Millier at Millier Winery in Murphy's makes a dynamite Zinfandel no, known for its um, black pepper expression okay. and uh, so I, I like that that not only that wine but that vineyard for that wine uh, of course grand pair the original grand pair uh, uh, it's a really a neat vineyard to visit to walk through any time of the year let's see um, CGRE uh, that vineyard I did I visited it a couple of years ago uh, during harvest and and it's so varied so attractive and so many different varieties going on and and the family history that's in, involved there. And uh, gee, was, there's, um, I'm trying to think of Lodi. You know, the, the original um, in, the, in the Delta, at Clarksburg, the Bogle Vineyard, the original vineyard that just outside the, the tasting room, which I think Originally was Petit Syrah and Chenin Blanc uh, is now Chardonnay largely, but I think they still might okay. have some Chenin Blanc there. And Ann Kramer's vineyard, Shake Ridge Ranch, which provides fruit to a whole bunch of winemakers, and I, I think I I noted in the in the book that there are at last count something like eleven wines designated Shake Ridge Ranch, eleven different wines from that vineyard 
on the wine list at the French Laundry in Napa Valley. She sells a lot of her fruit to Napa Valley wineries, but el- wineries elsewhere. A tribute to Grace uh, gets Grenache, one of uh, Angela Osborne's several Grenaches, comes from Shake Ridge Ranch. And uh, that's, again, a fun uh, vineyard to, to visit, the way it, it rolls. And there are so many different blocks, uh, different in the sense of exposure and elevation and what they're planted to. Yeah, there's a lot of great wines coming out of that vineyard. Yeah, there really are. A lot yeah. of really good producers that are making great wines. And that. Anne Kramer has her has her own brand, Yorba, with uh, uh, the tasting room in uh, Sutter Creek. In the book, there's a couple of the regions that you talk about, maybe El Dorado and, and Amador and Lodi, I, I think, are the three I'd put in, in the category of pretty well known. And then you have some others, Placer, Yolo, Yuba, that maybe folks don't know quite as much about. Is there one of those that you think might take that jump into being a little more well-known? Hmm. I, I think Placer and Nevada counties have the potential. It hasn't materialized yet to any any great extent. Nevada County is has a, a really fascinating history when it comes to grape growing and winemaking. The problem there seems to be that it is it's rugged, mountainous, steep slopes, and the property, while it's less expensive than Napa and Sonoma, is more expensive to develop because of that. You'd have to fall timber and and um, do all sorts of things, contour the, the land. So I think that holds it back somewhat. Mm-hmm. Nevada County, for years, has produced some terrific Cabernet Franc, Sauvignon Blanc, some Zinfandel, some other varieties, but it just, it just hasn't uh, grown very much. And the same with uh, Placer County. They're both both mm-hmm. just haven't been developed. Now, in Yolo County, uh, the same could be said for Cape Valley. It's been very slow to expand. Uh, now, in the Dunnigan Hills, <clears throat> it's been a lot of planning there in Yolo County. And you have Matchbook, Crew Wine Company, Matchbook Wine Company, same company. Uh, the Gagier family, John and, and Carl, and Lane uh, have been instrumental in really drawing attention to that portion of Yolo County and the Dunnigan Hills in particular. But they're still the only winery presence out there. Other vineyards that have come in uh, are, uh, hesitate to say corporate, but larger wineries and growers from from Napa and um, Sonoma who recognize that the quality of the fruit that can come out of there, but they use it for the most part to supplement their premium wines, either uh, in, in blending or as separate releases that might not yet uh, have the stature of their flagship wines. But I, I, there's still, I mean, there is growth going on in, in the Dunnigan Hills there in Lodi, it seems to have hit a plateau, and 
it could go either way. Uh, there are some vineyards that have been pulled out, especially, unfortunately, Old Vine, Zinfandel, uh, and other varieties, grape varieties, uh, because the farmers can get more money for walnuts, I guess, and, and, and maybe um, almonds. So it goes back and forth in Lodi. I think the acreage, what is it, it fluctuates between 90,000, 100,000 acres within the Appalachian. How do you feel like climate change will affect some of these regions? Well, I think in, um, say, El Dorado County, Amador County, and Nevada County, that has higher, higher elevation uh, space that could be developed into, into, and therefore cooler, could be developed into, into more vineyards that would soften the impact of climate change and higher temperatures. I think elsewhere, I think in um, Lodi, which is cooler than it often is perceived, uh, mm -hmm. but no, nonetheless will be susceptible to, to climate change and, and warmer temperatures. Going back to the Dunnigan Hills, the same there, which is pretty warm to begin with. I think that there are, there are growers who are introducing more Portuguese and Spanish and warmer climate varieties and seeing how they are doing and they're responding well. Um, Tempranillo, some of the uh, uh, varieties used in uh, Portuguese blends, uh, either in port or aside from port, that lend themselves to dry table wines, are going in and performing well. So I think they're going. They're making that necessary adjustment, and also viticultural practices um, are being tweaked to help as much as it can block, um, you know, trellising that to block clusters from intense sunlight. Mm -hmm. And uh, that I think that's what has helped account for the turnaround to a limited extent, but nonetheless a turnaround with Cabernet Sauvignon in the, in, in the foothills. Great. You know, I, I wanted to ask you about your wine judging history. I know you do a lot of judging for wine contests and you have for a long time. How have the wines changed since you've been doing that? And do you think they've gotten better or more consistent? Yeah, when, when it comes to uh, wine competitions, and I, and I do judge a fair number, uh, a lot of that was suspended or became somewhat spotty during the pandemic. But now they're getting back online. Uh, there's a growth in a number of, of, of competitions, and uh, there are some historic com competitions that um, are still around that I enjoy judging Los Angeles um, International, the California State Fair, the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, actually, I don't judge at the San Francisco Chronicle these days. I have another um, assignment there concerning writing uh, tasting notes on best-of-class wines. But to your question, yeah, definitely, uh, broadly speaking, the quality of, of the wines in competitions uh, has improved. Uh, I think that reflects just winemakers coming out of University of California, Davis, and elsewhere, Fresno State, Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, and their training and the emphasis on making clean, clear uh, wines is, is really reflected in, in 
what we're seeing in, in, in competitions. There, there are complaints about competitions that there are too many gold medal wines, too many silver, and that's 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 true. I, I think that the judging standards could be a little more restrictive, but I think that so many gold and silver metal wines really reflect how well made the wines are. I think that if standards were to be tightened up a bit, it would be in the sense that maybe the wines could be a little more expressive as to what they're supposed to be when it comes to varietal purity. Okay. I came back from a comp competition the other day, the Los Angeles Invitational, and our panel judged 20-some Cabernet Sauvignons in the price category of $75 and above, which is a price category where I think the Cabernets should really express Cabernet Sauvignon. They, they, they're bound to be young and somewhat hard, but beyond, and they were, definitely, but beyond that, there should be uh, decipherable a fair amount of traditional Cabernet markers, you know, the, the mm -hmm. cherries, the um, herbal notes, the uh, olives, uh, eucalyptus, things that I identify with Cabernet Sauvignon, especially California, and a high proportion of these wines were from Napa Valley. But they were just uh, so tannic, um, so hard, that maybe they were just entered too soon. Maybe they, they, they okay. uh, shouldn't have been entered in the competition. And, but judges generally are willing to look beyond those fierce tannins and recognize and acknowledge the fruit. But these, even doing that, the, the fruit was very elusive. That mm. was a big disappointment. Back to your, your question that, that winemaking is it's just it's a very... Um, competitive field and, and there are just the wines are, are competitive and in a competition where they're judged blind uh, we're looking for really the, the best wines on on the market in a wide range of uh, prices and uh, from a wide range of um, terroirs appellations I wanted to ask you about a specific winery that you've written a lot about in the past, which was Harbor Winery. I feel like you did a lot of great articles on it for the SAC B. Any history or anything you can tell me about Harbor? Harbor Winery, Charles Myers, of course, was, I mean, Charles Myers uh, teaming up with Ken Deaver and Bob Chinchero, then of, well, still Sutter Home, and Daryl Cordy in the late 1960s, really. Uh, triggered the um, rediscovery and of Zinfandel and launched it onto its um, acclaim and uh, it spread by doing what they did in, in uh, Amador County. Okay, Charles Myers and Harbor, and he did um, several other wines and uh, the Mission del Sol is well recognized for. And he... Well, he was just instrumental. He was a character. I mean, he started off as a home winemaker and, and, and then transitioned into commercial winemaking. And you mentioned Craig Harmeyer. Craig now makes his wines at the old Harbor Winery. Mm -hmm. And Andis Wines, 
in Amador County in conjunction with Daryl Cordy is making a Zinfandel based on Charles Meyer's, I hesitate to say recipe or formula, but his notes that he kept when he made his first Zinfandels. And um, that was done originally seven or eight years ago for one tribute wine. And then now they're doing it again, I think off the 2022 vintage or maybe 2021. Okay. But it won't be released for another year or two. But that's the kind of esteem that Harbor and Charles Myers and the kind of influence that uh, impact that uh, they had. And Daryl Cordy wants to continue to remind people that and to pay tribute to Charles Myers. But um, he definitely, you know, wandered into Deaver Vineyard in Shenandoah Valley one day looking, I think he was looking for Mission more than Zinfandel, but saw these great old mm-hmm. Zinfandel vines and decided to, oh, I'd like to get some of that, make some wine, see what came of it. And it was, uh, it just set Bob Chinchero on his route to um, becoming Chinchero Family Estates now, which is what, the fourth largest wine company in the country or thereabouts. That's amazing that uh, Amador Zin can do that. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> there wasn't much of that Amador, I don't think, if any, I don't think much uh, uh, the Amador Zin that he was getting from Deaver went into White Zinfandel. That, uh, he developed other vineyards and got other sources uh, for White Zinfandel, which really also helped lay the foundation for the success of the company. That's great. Yeah, is there anything anything you'd like to mention that you think I missed? I don't think so. I um, In the book, I, I'm really happy with the continued expression and quality of, of the, the 50 wines that I've, I've highlighted. And I do think that each tells a story, not only about a great variety or uh, a vineyard, but uh, about perhaps a trend or a change in style, but about principally about the people behind it and, and the risk that they've taken and how they, in all cases, have doggedly stuck with this or that variety and continue to really make something of it. And beyond the 50 wines, uh, there's a lot of uh, history in there that, uh, and, and I could have expanded on that and gone on and on and on, but at some point you have to um, say uh, enough is enough. I, I went down any number of rabbit holes during doing the research and, and some of this information all you know, I've kept and I'll draw on again in the future, but I had to cut it off at, at some point. And, and once I, I, I felt that it served its purpose, which was providing the uh, grounding for a better understanding of the 50 wines. I don't, I don't think I've mentioned that I should mention is that uh, I, I started to launch this uh, website, signaturewines.us, primarily to help market the book but there's a blog embedded in it, and that uh, allows me to, even though I'm no longer uh, writing for the Sacramento Bee, I do some other freelancing, but uh, for the most part, I'm using the blog to just keep my hand in reporting 
on um, what's going on in, in Superior, California, um, the wine scene here, whether it be Lodi or the Foothills, YOLO. So I, uh, as I mentioned, I'm just writing up one concerning the um, St. Peter's Church uh, Vineyards Infidel from um, Cooper Vineyards and just posted one concerning uh, the revival of uh, the D'Agostini brand. And uh, it also allows me to report on competitions where I've judged and my impressions concerning whether it be uh, really hard Cabernet Sauvignons or on the flip side at the Los Angeles Invitational was how delighted our panel was with a class of other red blends, which could be anything and basically was anything, but there were some really, really nice blends there. They were exciting in contrast to the, the Cabernets. They were, they were exciting wines and um, whether they be happy accidents or a reflection of some really precision winemaking, uh, that's definitely one area, blended wines, that the, the quality has improved over the years. And where are people able to get the book? I guess we should say also, we haven't said that the book is the signature wines of Superior California, 50 wines that define the Sierra Foothills, the Delta, Yolo, and Lodi. Is Correct. The yeah, that's a full mouthful. Yeah, it, uh, incidentally, it has just now, just recently become available uh, as a Kindle version. So it's available at uh, Amazon.com, and then it's uh, available at uh, many wineries in Lodi and in the foothills, um, in Calaveras, Murphy's, at uh, Miller Winery, at uh, Lavender Ridge, and uh, in Amador County, Scott Harvey Wines, Jeff Runquist, C.G. Diari, in uh, El Dorado County, um, Boger, uh, Madronia, uh, except they, they just they just sold out. So I'm going to replenish their supply this <laughs> weekend. And, okay, great. And uh, oh, a, a real uh, source uh, is Amador 360 in Plymouth. On the as you're coming into the Shenandoah Valley in Amador County, and that's a, uh, a retail place. Uh, also, a, a place a lot of people are familiar with because they, you can stop there if you're visiting and you don't want to haul your wine back to North Carolina or Connecticut or wherever. You can have it shipped from Amador 360. So there's a lot of traffic that goes through there. The book is available there. Some bookstores like Avid Reader in, in Sacramento, wine bars here, Rochambeau in, in Sacramento, time-tested books, uh, capital books um, in Sacramento. It's available there. Great. And Corey Brothers, I oh, think, also. Yeah, how could I forget Corey <laughs> Brothers? <laughs> the biggest single source. <laughs> Whoops. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Mike Dunn. I really enjoyed hearing how these winemaking and grape growing regions have grown and changed. And Mike was there documenting much of it. There are links to the book from Cordy Brothers and Amazon in the show description, as well as Mike's website if you want to pick up your own copy of the book. You can follow the podcast on wherever you're listening, and also the Instagram at IndieWinePodcast for updates, or email IndieWinePodcast at gmail.com. Next episode will be with Adam Sabelli Frisch of Sabelli Frisch Wines. We'll talk about making wine in LA, why and how he works with Mission, 
what he likes about the Lodi region and running a small winery in California. Have a good one.